Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. In terms of this Lord's Day, I wouldn't say there's anything that's radically new in terms of what the Catechism has already taught us. And so when something's being repetitive, either somebody's lost track of time and doesn't really know what they're saying, or there's a purpose behind it. In terms of how deliberate the catechism is, I would argue, as we look at this, that the catechism's emphasizing the importance of Christ's suffering. And when we know that Christ has suffered, we know that he's suffering for the Lord's purpose. Now, when I looked at this Lord's Day and looked at the previous Lord's Day, and we think about the implications of our redemption in terms of looking at the catechism this time, I think it's important for us to understand, as people can argue or bring against the Reformed position, uh, that this is just a Pauline doctrine, not in the sense that I'm Paul or Pauline, but in the sense of the Apostle Paul, uh, that this is just something the Apostle Paul has developed, it's unique to his theology, and it's something that the Reformers looked at Paul's writings and said, this is what he's teaching. And so I thought it would be helpful looking at this Lord's Day, Isaiah 53, cited in a couple of the question answers, that I think it's helpful to understand the Old Testament backdrop to the mission of Christ. Uh, You can understand, I think when we go through Isaiah 53, why Christ seems to be so impatient uh, with his disciples. He's still gracious, obviously, and doesn't uh, walk away from them. But you certainly sense, say in Luke 24, an impatience that Christ has of how do, you, <clears throat> how do you not understand the reality of what I'm seeking to accomplish in terms of my death and resurrection. And so when we look at this, I wanted to say, well, why, why is it so important? Obviously, as the Catechism writes this, and I agree with the Catechism, there's obviously a significance to Christ's suffering. And so why is it so important that Christ suffers? Why is it so important that Christ dies? Are we just morbid individuals that want to focus on the suffering of Christ? Or is there something more going on here? So as we look at this, I wanted to just kind of condense the question answers and deal with why Christ's death and burial? Why did this happen? Why do we suffer and die? And how did Christ suffer hell? Again, that controversial a point in the Apostles' Creed of he descended into hell. And so first let's begin, why Christ's death and burial? As the Catechism starts, it's emphasizing the reality that Christ really did die. Uh, we know that Christ had to die. We've covered this in terms of redemption, in terms of making payment, in terms of Christ taking our sins upon himself. However, what the Catechism wants to really drive home is that we have to have the assurance that the curse and death has been taken away from us. Remember, we use the fancy 
the fancy language of double imputation. So when we speak of double imputation, remember we're saying it's a double payment. And so Christ's righteous work gets credited to us, our sin gets credited to him. So just to make that very clear, we got the better end of the bargain. And so that's what we mean by double imputation. So the catechism wants to drive this point home. You think about this in terms of our history coming out of Rome. Uh, hopefully this isn't just a reaction to Rome. I, I wouldn't classify it as a reaction. But for Rome, it's Christ accomplishes suffering, gives us enough grace to attain justification at some point. Or a catechism wants to drive home rather clearly, this is why it's repeating the suffering of Christ, that Christ took the fullness of the sanction, the fullness of the punishment in our place. This is why we move on to the next issue. We've talked about suffering, we've talked about the curse, but now the catechism addresses the issue, why was he buried? Now when we think about this, this again, in terms of uh, our, in terms of the gospel accounts, as I mentioned last time, two gospels have a birth narrative. Again, it's not that the birth of Christ is insignificant, but we can tell it's not as significant as, say, the court scene of Pilate, the crucifixion on, on the cross, and also the burial of Christ. They all have, have a record of this burial and resurrection. And so the, the catechism wants us to understand Christ was really dead. And so it's appealing to uh, the gospel writers, the gospel accounts. Um, if you're familiar with, uh, you know, some uh, statement where, you know, we find in a, in a famous movie that I love where it says he's only mostly dead, right? I mean, we can come away with this thinking that maybe Christ is just partially dead. And I think the important thing to take from the gospel accounts is that Roman soldiers are very uh, skilled uh, very experienced and understanding death. That's what they did. That was their career. And so when, when we have the gospel accounts of sticking a spear in Christ's side and the Roman soldiers declaring him dead, they're not going to take him off the cross if Christ is not really dead. And so that's what the catechism is saying, that the moment the Roman soldiers say, yes, you can have his, his body or his remains, you can take him off the, the cross. A Roman soldier is not going to put himself on the line and take a chance that maybe he's not really dead. No, they want to make sure he's really dead. This is why they break the legs of the other men, so that way they, they would suffocate and not drag out their death. Christ sticking the spear in his side is just confirming what they already know. And so the catechism wants us to understand Christ really died. This is not theatrics. This is not Christ playing a game. He really died. And so when we look at this and, and we deal with the issue or the objection that people can bring against us, this is just something from the Apostle Paul. This is just something that we try to impose on Scripture. It's not really in the Old Testament. Well, this is where I thought it's helpful to look at the servant's song, if anyone ever brings this up to you. And the fourth serv servant's song is very important. Now, the servant songs, if you're familiar with Isaiah, we have Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, is the first servant song. Now, in this servant song, it makes clear that the chosen one will establish justice. So we have this understanding of this gracious uh, shepherd, warrior type individual 
who's going to be strong, he's going to establish justice. So we have this, this presentation of the servant of being, being the mighty warrior of God. That's a vision we can get behind. So great, you know, we, we want him to be a mighty warrior. This is where you can understand the disciples, the Israelites, having a difficult time of Christ going to Jerusalem to die. No, you're the mighty warrior. You're the one who makes things right. Uh, you're the one who doesn't break the bruised reed. It's a compassionate, strong, powerful shepherd image that's going on in Isaiah 42. Well, as a servant uh, song theology develops in Isaiah, we have Isaiah 49, the next one, verses 1 through 13, where the servant is identified as a sword uh, and the quiver. In other words, he's the Lord's weapon chosen by God. So once again, we say, wow, here's a redeemer, the weapon of God, going to conduct holy war on our behalf. So no explicit presentation of suffering there. Basically, again, it's a vision we can get behind as humans. A servant who suffers and fights or fights on our behalf. Moving on then in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. Now we have not only is he pictured as a compassionate shepherd, a warrior, but he's also pictured as a wise guru, a, a sage, very much an ideal disciple in Isaiah 50. Uh, he receives instruction from the Lord. He does the Lord's will. Uh, he underst understands this. He's the one who now we're understanding some suffering, experiencing some disgrace, uh, but at the end of the day, the ones that torment him, well, they're going to be like kindling. You know, they're going to be torched and thrown into the fire. So again, we say, all right, there's some concept of suffering here. He's a wise sage, but we have there the ultimate victory of the one who's going to bring about this destruction of those that torment him. And so in those first three servant songs, we, we get a picture of the servant. We understand him as a shepherd warrior, a wise shepherd warrior who undergoes suffering. But now when we turn to Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13, we have this understanding of a servant that's presented to us as severely uh, suffering. But it's not just he suffers because, you know, he runs with the mouth or he's unwise or, or maybe he deserves this suffering because, you know, he just uh, mouthed off to the wrong person or said the wrong thing in the wrong context. But no, it starts with an with a assurance. He acts wisely. And so right here, we, we have a recollection of what we know. Okay, well, this is a servant who acts wisely. He's going to be exalted. We say, wonderful, great. Let's stop there. This is a servant we want. But as it develops in verse 14, we were astonished. His appearance being marred. Uh, one that's beyond human semblance. This basically means that we take a look at him and we say, this is a grotesque individual. And we wonder, well, well if this servant is chosen by God, and he's going to be high and exalted, he's a mighty warrior, why is he so, so grotesque? Well, as we go on, we, we find that he's the one that's also going to bring about redemption. So we find in verse 15 this language of redemption and, and conquering and victory. So I say, okay. So what, what does this all mean? I, I mean, we, we understand the servant, but what about the servant? What, what happens? Well, as we go on, 
we find in verse 8 of Isaiah 53, and we're going to skip through this a little bit. But in verse 8, we have this language of oppression and judgment. He was taken away. So notice it's not because of what he has done. As you go up in verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. So we're understanding, wait a minute, he's experiencing a miscarriage of justice. This is why his appearance is marred. And so the servant's song is kind of like Isaiah putting his arm around the Israelites and saying, be prepared. The servant I've talked about, let's lay out what this really looks like. He will accomplish victory. He will be exalted. But he's going to be marred. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be abused. And, and you're going to experience something that's rather shocking to you. He's going to experience oppression, affliction, and yet we're going to find he never opened his mouth. In other words, he didn't deserve it. He wasn't running around, you know, stirring up trouble in terms of, of in front of the, the, the rulers or, or the soldiers. He's one who really kept to himself. And yet as a result of this, he experiences this injustice. So, so he doesn't deserve it. There's nothing about him where you say, well, yeah, you know, maybe this was a little over the top. But, you know, this is, these are some of the things a guy did. Well, the reality is, Isaiah is telling us, he did nothing to deserve it. Nothing at all. Now, notice then as we go down to verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked. So right here, we find that, that there's this identification of who he is. He is the one who has done this. He is the one who is going to be identified with wicked, sinful individuals. And so we say, oh, well, maybe he didn't, you know, open his mouth and, and run with the mouth and, and get himself into trouble with the Roman soldiers, but maybe he was involved in other stuff behind the scenes. But notice how verse 9 goes on. Although he had done no violence. So right here, violence is basically just anything that, that would be characterized as aggressive. He didn't do anything that would really be characterized as aggressive, uh, rebellious in terms of his actions. And so the, the point is, truly, he, he didn't deserve this, this type of death in any way. Notice then as we go on, because we, we hear he hasn't run with the mouth, but there's no deceit in his mouth. So in terms of being a wise uh, individual who really vibes and, and knows what wisdom is in terms of Proverbs or in terms of Torah, in terms of living before God. He, he has this. This is who he is as his identity. He cares about justice. He doesn't act violently. He doesn't deceive. The words that he speaks are the wise words of the living God. And so the, the point of Isaiah is he's telling us, listen, this individual who was buried is innocent in his burial. The death that he died is a miscarriage of justice. It is going to be a heinous death that leads to his marring, his disfiguring, to the point where you can't even bear to look at this individual. You would tell children to look away because it is so disgusting and heinous to see a human being marred to this degree. So this is telling us a different picture in terms of what we've heard in the other servant songs. The other servant songs, we, we picture more of an action-type superhero who comes on the scene, makes things right, 
and where he can get behind him and say, yeah, you know, establish your justice, make everything right. Now in Isaiah 52 to 53, Isaiah is saying, but wait a minute. Let's understand how this happens. This doesn't happen in the way you expect it to happen. This happens with the one who comes and experiences intense suffering as an innocent man experiencing the miscarriage of justice. So right here we can say, yes, this is what the Gospels pick up. Paul's theology picks up on this. Peter picks up on this. The book of Acts picks up on this. And so you can see how the New Testament really has a backdrop of this theology. It's not just a New Testament doctrine. Right here with the suffering servant of Christ, the picture of Christ and his mission is presented. So yes, he really died. Yes, he was really buried. It testifies to the reality that he died for wicked people being identified uh, with his brethren who are in sin. So then we, we move to the next logical issue. All right, so Christ did this as a suffering servant. As a one who goes to make war, makes everything right, he is the one who's going to accomplish this, this victory and, and do this perfectly. Well, then if Christ has done it, and, and if we're correct as Reformed people in our understanding of this double imputation, you know, our sin getting credited to Christ, his righteousness being credited to us, if, if we're right on this, well, then why do we still die? It would seem that we could just walk right into heaven, uh, the curse would be removed, and, and we no longer sin. Well, when we understand this, we see first, uh, he is innocent. When we look at how this begins, so Christ is one who truly is a righteous sacrifice. Secondly, he's condemned by an earthly judge, which we covered last time. So we know that Christ being innocent is condemned. But this is also showing us that as a consequence of our sin and a consequence of what Adam has done, we're not dying to make atonement. We're dying as a consequence of sin. And so this, this sin can, continues to reign and have its consequence upon us. And so we say, well, then why the death? Why, why did Christ die on the cross? Well, I've laid out, and you've heard before, the double imputation or the double crediting uh, that goes on. But there's another theory that Christ dies on the cross to show how angry God is with sin. Uh, that if God does this to his perfect son, imagine what he's going to do to you is along the lines of this theory. And so the, the motivation here is that as you have the tyranny of understanding Christ's death, well then, as you have this tyranny of Christ's death, you're going to be motivated to live a holy and godly life because you're going to be so terrified of what goes on. Well, the Catechism wants us to understand that Christ really took the curse in our place. Declared innocent by an earthly judge, goes and endures this punishment so that our sin is taken away. Yes, we still die. Yes, we still experience the consequence of the common curse. We still experience the, the pain of this age, the pain of death, the pain of sickness, the pain of sin, whatever you want to say. We still experience it. However, we know that Christ really took the curse in our place. So again, this is one of those things where people say, well, you're taking Paul's theology and you're just trying to impose this in Paul's theology. This really isn't the theology of Scripture. And so let's examine that. So we return back 
to Isaiah's servant. And we look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. And as we understand this, we know that he is one who truly has done something. He was despised and rejected by man. Now when we hear that, we can say, well, it's maybe because he had no former majesty. Uh, maybe that's, that's the problem. But notice that, that there's something else about him. He grew up before him like a young plant. Now, the picture here is where you basically, you, you've planted something. Uh, you look at a shoot coming up, and, and maybe if you're a farmer, you're thinking, here we go, you know, we, we got a crop, we're, we're rolling, everything's going to work out. Well, it, it doesn't turn into anything. It shoots up real quick, it looks promising, but nothing happens. And so the expectation is as people hear the Messiah entering history, they're going to look upon him and say, oh, here's the one, here's the one that's really going to do something. And then it disappoints. And again, this, this isn't a problem with the suffering servant. This isn't a problem with God's plan of redemption. It's a problem of our perspective. That's what's being laid out here. Our perspective is we have a certain understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to look like. He doesn't meet our expectation. Therefore, we look away because we think that this plant really isn't growing any roots. There really isn't any substance to it. There really isn't going to be any harvest. There really isn't going to be anything that matters as a consequence of this plant being here. And so the Messiah is dismissed. So now when you go to verse 3, we're understanding how this happened. His own people who should embrace him and say, here's the wise servant, are going to dismiss him. We think of even his mother going to find Christ, right? When she hears the reports, your son's kind of lost it. He's doing some stuff, claiming some Messiah stuff. She goes, tries to get him out of the situation before it gets really bad, and Christ rebukes her because she doesn't understand his mission. Even his own mother, who had revelation from an angel, failed to understand who he was fully. Now again, it's not that she's unregenerate. We, we all have the struggle, as we'll see in a moment. And so as he's despised and as he's rejected, this is not a consequence or a problem with the Messiah. It's a problem with us. Now as uh, he's rejected and as he's despised, we understand the identity, the title of him. We would think victorious one, mighty warrior maybe, we can think of Wonderful Counselor, a name that Isaiah applies to Christ. But that's not the name here. Man of Sorrows. So this is one who is continually uh, grieving. A one who is the embodiment of suffering pain, is, is the force of the sorrows. Uh, he, he's the one who's experiencing the hardship of his mission. So this man of sorrows is not saying he's just a whiner. It's saying that he embodies the consequence and the pain of sin, the pain of this age. He's acquainted. He knows grief. And again, it goes on to talk about individuals hiding their faces, rejecting him. And so you understand not only does he literally suffer in terms of experiencing pain, but he also experiences what it means to be alone to truly be the lone wolf in the worst sense of that term, of being absolutely rejected, absolutely kicked to the curb, absolutely betrayed, not only by Judas, 
but even by his own disciples not wanting to be identified with him. That's what the servant song is saying. And as it goes on, and it tells us more in verses 4 and 5, notice whose griefs he borne. He borne our griefs. In other words, our hardship, our pain, our suffering, our sorrows, he takes upon himself. He carries our sorrows. And, and how do we receive him? We receive him in faith, right? We say, this is our Redeemer. Praise be to God for him. No, again, it recalls for us we, we dismiss him. We esteem him as stricken. Hey, he's cursed to God. He made these claims. He's getting just what he deserves. I mean, a rather heartless commentary on, on the reception of Christ. Again, it's tragic, but this is the reality of who we are, and we see this manifesting itself when Christ is on the cross, smitten by God. And so he is smitten by God. We're saying he deserves it, but Isaiah said, no, he, he's innocent. He didn't deserve it, and he is truly afflicted. Now it goes on, because again, we would think, well, we're going to receive him. But verse 5, pierced, um, cut, uh, stamped uh, for our sins. We transgress, but he's the one who bears it. He's crushed, put down. God crushes him. This is uh, just completely destroying something. He's crushed, why? For our iniquities. And the chastisement that we deserve, the rebuke, the harshness, well, he receives that. We are those who receive peace. So right here we have in Isaiah this double transaction. Our sins, our uh, consequence of what we deserve is credited to him. We're those who receive the blessing. And if, if we think I'm reading this into the text, notice how he goes on in verse 5 at the end of it. And with his wounds we are healed. And so our rejection, our cutting him off, our saying, ooh, don't look at that man. You know, you hide your kid's eyes from it because it's so grotesque. And yet we're healed by his wounds as we rejected him. And we say, oh, but, but we're not that bad, are we? We're going to embrace him. Verse 6 is probably one of the most tragic verses in terms of how we respond. Um, in terms of what Christ endures, there's a lot of tons of tragedy. But in terms of how we respond, I mean, we should look upon Christ and be weeping and saying, thank you so much for enduring this. I deserve to be in your place and may I switch places with you. But what happens in verse 6? We go astray. We've turned. We've walked away. We've dismissed him. We devalued the significance of what he's done. He said, ah, it doesn't really matter. He's just getting what he deserves. And yet the whole time when he's there enduring our suffering, as Isaiah tells us, he's enduring the suffering. Our sins are getting credited to him. We're denying him while he's enduring this. And we just walk away like sheep without a shepherd. We just ignore it. It's nothing more than, than maybe some entertainment for a night. And that's all it may mean to us. But really understanding who he is as our shepherd, we turn away. He's oppressed, he's afflicted, and he does not open his mouth. You would think, I mean, I know myself, and if I had to endure this in the place of Christ, there'd be a lot of complaining on the cross. But the point of this, he doesn't complain. 
He doesn't raise his voice. He's unangry with his people. I mean, you, you would think of your disciples being in the room after enduring this as Isaiah is describing this, and you're locked in a room hiding away. I mean, you think your blood would boil pretty hot going in there saying, do you know what I endured for you and here you guys? Lock yourselves away so you can have life, so you can be secure and just hang me out there to dry. And this is where you find, if you say, well, why do we want to come before our Lord? Christ doesn't do that. He stands in their midst and he does rebuke them. But why does he rebuke them? Did you not understand what I was going to do? Did you not understand the suffering servant? Did you not understand my mission? Did you not understand I had to do this to be your shield and defender? Did you not understand that part of the last servant song that Isaiah told you? So it's not how dare you or do you know what I endured in your place, which Christ would have every right to do. But that's not what he does. He does not open his mouth. If we think of the righteous and gracious and merciful priest, this right here uh, should overwhelm us. And how our Lord comes to us with open arms, invites us to pray to him, invites us to bring our, our struggles, our griefs, our concerns to him, and, and yet he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't rebuke us in the way we've treated him. And so the point of this then, in terms of why do we suffer and die? Well, we experience the consequence of the curse. Why does Christ endure this? Why was he condemned? Well, to assure us that Christ really did take the sanction of death in our place. Now going on to the last one, question answer 44. And I'll be brief on this and summarize the debate very tersely. So as if you're familiar, the descended into hell and the Apostles' Creed, there's discussion. Calvin himself had some concerns about this language. Uh, some people say this is deceptive because it sounds as if Christ has to be in the grave for three days in order to fully bear the consequence of sin. Uh, others uh, would look at, say, 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 19, uh, with the preaching to those who were in prison at the time of Noah's flood, and say that's what Christ did at his death, uh, that he went down into the, the realm of the dead and he preached uh, to those who were in prison. And the answer to that, very briefly, is just if you look at the grammar of the Greek, it's just simply saying Noah, in building the ark, is projecting and presenting uh, the very reality of this judgment. It's showing the type, the model, like we talked about this morning, as the model that correlates to the reality of it. That's simply what Noah's doing. And so that's the rebuke. That's the victory. Uh, Christ is the one who is ultimately victorious. In terms of de Christ descending into hell for three days, we have to understand that in terms of who Christ is, he doesn't need to be in hell for three days. A moment of in what appears to us as a split second in time of suffering, as Christ is a God-man, uh, this is sufficient to take away the whole, uh, the whole what, what is necessary for our sin uh, to be credited to him and his righteousness, righteousness to be credited to us because he is the one who is able to do this and what appears to us to be a moment in time can still be an eternal sanction. Uh, we'll get into this more in Hebrews 9 uh, with the view of how the author of Hebrews presents Christ basically coming up uh, into the most holy place and being slaughtered by God himself 
Uh, not that he's contradicting the, the Gospels, but he's giving us, you know, that heavenly perspective of what Christ's work really has done. And so what I appreciate about the Catechism is instead of challenging what the Apostles' Creed says or interacting with it, it just simply lays out why we say this. And so when we say the Apostles' Creed, let us call this to our mind or to our attention. Uh, why do we say he descended into hell? Notice, my deepest dread and temptation that in the midst of it, uh, we are assured that Christ took it away. So again, we think of Christ being abandoned, we come before Christ. He knows this, he wants us to come before him. We can be assured that this has been taken away. It is the assurance that Christ has taken our, away our anguish, our suffering, the dread, and basically everything of sin has been removed in Christ. And so it's all in the cross. So the catechism's calling to our attention. Here's the significance of the cross. Here's the significance of Christ's death and how this applies to us. And so going back to the servant song, why is this so significant? And this is where we get to the end of, of the song and where we find a lot of hope and assurance in terms of this. As we find in verse 10, it's the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, this means that the Lord desires, I mean, the, the language of crushing is fully humiliating uh, someone, bringing them to the absolute lowest place. And so there's an assurance that this is not accidental. And so Isaiah now is telling us, listen, all this stuff that happens, it's not because the servant's incompetent or God's incompetent. This was the desire of God. He's the one who does what? Makes an offering for guilt. This is what we want to understand. This is why this happens. Uh, we understand that uh, he's the one who's going to prolong the days of his offspring. So now we're, we're understanding, wait a minute, this story doesn't just end in the suffering servant being disfigured, marred, destroyed, uh, along the lines of what Job says and of what God's doing to him of trying to destroy him in Job 4.19 and 6 verse 9. That there's a purpose to this. That is that we are those who are actually going to be his offspring. Going on then with the assurance of this in terms of why is it so assuring that Christ endured this? Why is it so ensuring that Christ endured hell? Well, we know that we are those who are uh, counted righteous. Verse 11, he bore our iniquities. He took them away. And so it's in his soul, in the very essence of who he is. He has taken all this away. And so again, it's that reminder, this isn't just theatrics. Uh, the servant song did begin with the promise of him being exalted. How do we know he's going to be exalted? Well, this is where we have verse 12, a very important verse in the servant song. If this verse is not here, then the servant's work is, is annulled and pointless. Again, very Pauline in its understanding. Uh, he's going to divide the portions. So he's going to divide the heavenly rest, like we heard about this morning in Hebrews. Uh, he's the one who pours out his soul to death, etc. But notice what we have at the end, the very last line. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is saying that the servant lives to pray on our behalf as the sinners who turned on him. 
This means that the servant actually prays that we make it to our eternal rest after he has borne our griefs and has been severely marred and disfigured. What Job wishes God would do and thinks God's going to do, but never endures, the servant endures. The servant then lives to make intercession, which tells us what? The story of the servant does not end in the grave, but in a glorious resurrection. So in terms of why does he endure hell? Well, he endures hell to assure us and to certainly take away everything that stands in the way of where we are in terms of our relationship to God. He endures the full sanction of death, everything that it means. And then he lives to make intercession. And so his resurrection testifies to the reality that what he has accomplished has truly been accomplished. The heavenly courts have vindicated him. They have declared him righteous. And then he has been raised from the dead. And he is not one who remains in the sanction and punishment of hell. And so when we ask that question then, is the suffering of Christ something that is really that important? Well, yes. Not just because the catechism repeats it, but because the catechism wants to drive home that our sins are taken away, that our Lord desires for us to come before him in the midst of temptation, that the Lord is the one who is actually living to make intercession, praying on our behalf, that he is not an indifferent Lord, he is not an indifferent shepherd, but he continues to care for us. It's a reminder then, that as we walk through this age, we walk in the confidence that all of our sins have been taken away. We walk in the confidence that our Lord truly knows who we are. He truly knows it. He's seen it. He's witnessed it. He's experienced it. And as a result of that, He still applies His righteous work to us, takes our sins away from us, and continues to intercede on our behalf. Let us then see the beauty of this resurrection. Let us see the beauty of the new life. And let us not see this as merely this New Testament doctrine, as some say, but right here in the prophet Isaiah, the work of Christ and what he is going to do. Our sins have been credited to him, his righteousness to us. We are united to a victorious Savior who lives to make intercession for us. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.